Good morning, everyone. Um, if it's felt a little chaotic this morning, I don't, I don't know. I know I'm hypersensitive to it. We are if we're leading this, but maybe for you it has it. That's all been intentional. I imagine giving birth in a barn is a chaotic experience, and we wanted you to have an immersive experience this morning. So you've been immersed a little bit into that. Um, so we are still in the preparatory season of Advent. And to be clear, I'm team Advent here this morning. We have team Christmas. They're trying. This is our time, team Advent's time. But team Christmas is bumping in on it some. But we're in this preparatory season of Advent. And over the past several weeks, we focused on hope, peace, joy, and now this week, love, the four themes of Advent. I am always, always, always happy to speak about love. Fran pointed out recently again that gratitude is the secret to a happy life, and I think she's right, and I would also add that I think love is the secret to a faithful life. I won't re-preach the sermon I preached on love about a year ago, although I love that sermon, and if all the other words I've ever spoken go away, vanished in a blip, and, and just that sermon on love remained, I would die a happy heretic. <laughs> Not because it was brilliant, but instead because I think the practice of love is the core of our faith. Yeah. Love is the best, the absolute best expression of humanity, and it is said whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it's said that the Apostle John, who wrote a couple of the New Testament books and stood along Jesus' mother while her son was crucified, it said that in the final years of his life, he would only utter one thing, dear children, let us love one another. Maybe his mind was failing, or maybe he decided he only had so many breaths left and it would be wasteful to say anything else. And everything you need to live the Christian life is contained right there. Stand by. All right. So I want to talk this morning about love and singing. Drew just read the main text for our talk this morning, Mary's visit to Elizabeth, followed by Mary's song. It's called the Magnificat. It's kind of famous. The entire nativity story is filled with lots of unlikely characters. We saw some this morning. Eeyore was here this morning in our nativity. Baby Jesus, I don't know if you could see, but baby Jesus, in the irony of all ironies, was a piglet, uh, a rather unclean animal to Jews, but baby Jesus was a piglet being held up right there, wrapped, uh, swaddled in a shower curtain borrowed from Texas Hall over here. There were other unlikely characters in the original nativity. There were outcast shepherds. There were wise men, foreigners, who were actually the ones with the inside knowledge. There was a birthing party of farm animals. But Mary's song has stood as uniquely remarkable throughout the centuries, although it's mostly ignored in many contemporary Christmas stories. I suspect our, our Catholic friends gave her more focus than the rest of us do, but for most varieties of Protestantism, she's just kind of there, a necessary accessory to the story, carrying and delivering Jesus, kind of like an Amazon driver delivers packages, just kind of getting it done 
Does this sound right to others? I mean, Mary's just kind of an accessory. In fact, it wasn't until coming to this community and beginning to read more progressive theology that I discovered personally how radical and important Mary was and is both this scene and the song that, that she sings in it. Surprisingly, the scene only has two actors, two women, one that's pregnant too late and one that's pregnant too soon. And already, if you're reading this during that time, you're thinking, what, is this a low-budget production? They couldn't get men for the actors? Why women? Or perhaps you're reading it under your sheet at night with your flashlight because it's improprietous and scandalous, something not to be discussed in polite company. It's an incredible story. I won't recap it all particularly because Jonathan has the task next week of speaking about the birth narrative and the Christmas story. I'm looking forward to that. Here we are in Advent still, though, a season where, as Isaiah would write and John the Baptist would later recite, and then Dr. King would reignite for us in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, where every valley is raised up and every mountain and hill made low and the rough places made level and the rugged places made an open plain. That's the season we're in. You're familiar with the story of how Mary came to be pregnant. I didn't include it in the reading this morning, but just before it, uh, the angel says to her, you're going to be pregnant. And she says, let it be. And I'm, I'm sure somebody here knows if the Beatles song by the same title, if it's drawn from here, I don't know. I like, it's, I like to think it is. Aurelia said it's not. But I like to think it is too. And I will continue to think it is. You can't take that from me. <laughs> but I want to acknowledge, right, when we have this, this huge story, such a central part of our faith, in a way, in, in a community like this, there's an elephant in the room with this kind of story. We are a belief-diverse community. I think it's one of our greatest strengths, this heterogeneity of belief that we have. And so I know there's a lot of different perspectives on this kind of story here today. From all of you, we, for instance, we have the literalist in our community this morning, and I'm glad you're here, and, but you would say that it literally happened exactly like it's written. And you would say, I believe in the Immaculate Conception, that the Holy Spirit enabled Mary to be pregnant, and this means to me that God can break the conventional rules of our universe if wanted. And that's good news because, have you looked around lately? We need someone and something to interrupt these cycles of violence and fear, greed, and exploitation. So I'm glad you're here. If that's your perspective this morning, and I hope you join God and find a way to help lead us in that kind of disruptive work. But I know we also have here this morning those who would say, and, and this will be shocking to some people, but there are those who would say that Mary is pregnant most likely because she was violated by a Roman soldier. This is a perspective that some Christians throughout history have held. She a peasant girl, he a grown man with a sword and all the authority of an occupying military force actively subjugating a fierce-hearted people. And those who hold this position here this morning might tend to look through the lenses of how power is used and abused and the effects that that has on people's lives and possibilities. 
This is, of course, what today we would call critical race theory. Today, it's, it's a boogeyman to you only if your goal is to quietly amass and use power over others. CRT just says the quiet part out loud. But maybe that's your perspective this morning. How did she come to be pregnant? Also here this morning, we have those who might be from what's considered unconventional families, who see themselves in pregnant Mary, who don't meet all of society's expectations for how and when pregnancies should happen or how and when families should come into existence and how they should live together. If that's you, you probably feel some empathy and some kinship with Mary and perhaps some real gratitude for Elizabeth because you see in Elizabeth your own aunties who break family convention, ignoring everyone's judgment, opening their arms and their homes in support of the Marys of this world. I'm obviously reading into the text some here and saying this about Elizabeth, but it's not hard to imagine. Don't pay them any mind. Don't worry about them. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're carrying this baby, and it's a baby of promise, Elizabeth says to Mary. And how many of you have had an Elizabeth in your life that fills that important role? We need them. Also here this morning are those who are uneasy with Mary's pregnancy, not because it breaks dominant culture's prescription for acceptable pregnancies, but because you worry what hardships await her in a society where the Romans are systematically dismantling communal social safety nets, trying to keep these Jews subject to them. Where the Jews aren't, we'll say, allowed to congregate in large groups or be out after dark or grow subsistence crops rather than cash crops or organize labor unions for workers' rights or class action lawsuits. Of course, in all this, I'm playing with time. I've collapsed it, and we have echoes of 20th century black codes in Jim Crow America, echoes that still reverberate today. Recently, my son, as part of one of his classes, his world cultures class, he was reading the documentary, God Grew Tired of Us, the story of the lost boys of Sudan. Anybody seen it? It's a great, it's a great documentary. And in, at one point, we paused and we talked about this documentary because this group of men from Sudan, were, they were brought here in order so that they could experience the good life. And yet not long after they, they got here, they were told by the police, they were stopped and told by the police, you can't travel in groups because it intimidates the neighbors and the shopkeepers. So we have these echoes of 20th century black codes designed to still birth God's spark in the human spirit. Or maybe you're concerned for Mary. You're here this morning. No, none of that. I'm concerned for Mary because I am attentive to the health care disparities facing pregnant women of color today. In response, we have organizations like Black Mamas ATX. Look them up. A fantastic organization. Because black mothers experience maternal death rates two to four times higher than white women. And they have a higher risk of developing postpartum depression. And although black children in Texas make up just 11% of births, their mothers make up nearly 30% of all women in Texas who die from pregnancy-linked complications. So maybe this Mary story is significant for you because it touches a part of that painful reality that you see around us or maybe you experience. So there's many perspectives on this Mary story. And one of my goals when I'm preaching is not just to say the same old thing you've heard, but to open up the text 
to bridge from then to now so maybe you're seeing in a new way bring this story to life there's so many perspectives so many points of context all of which can honor the struggle inherent in this story but it's more than a struggle story you know what i'm saying because the story tells us that mary burst into song she burst into song i mean it's almost illegal for her to be pregnant outside of wedlock and yet she sings we might say that mary is the matron saint of all caged birds to borrow from maya angelou the caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still and her tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom likewise mary sings and what's divine here is that she sings not only because she is caged by economic social and religious conventions but she sings also because she realizes i have not been forgotten by god that god lifts the lowly and the hungry she sings because she's been invited into this partnership with god and we might say rather than angelou's caged bird perhaps mary is also like the county colon poem he was a harlem renaissance poet who wrote the poem yet do i marvel writing i do not doubt that god is good well-meaning kind and did he stoop to quibble could tell me why the little buried mole continues blind why flesh that mirrors him must someday die make plain the reason tortured tantalus as baited by the fickle fruit declare if merely brute caprice dooms sisyphus to struggle up a never-ending stair inscrutable his ways are and immune to catechism by a mind too strewn with petty cares to slightly understand what awful brain compels his awful hand yet do i marvel at this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing and likewise mary sings called by god she sings seen by god this fire of god now alive in her heart and mind and belly mary sings mary marvels at the unexpected curious thing of having been included by god in god's plans some commentators say that her let it be that she says is more than a passive meh okay why not my calendar's clear and it's more like she's saying okay let's do this i'll join you in turning the world upside down it looks like god is doing something i'm not just sitting around i'm joining in in a way then it's a defiant decision in a society that treats her as if she is almost more property than person legally speaking she dares to co-sign a call from god sure there's a balance uh, a power imbalance here between them that's inevitable one side has access to innumerable resources so it's not a relationship of equality but it is a relationship of mutuality of respect of empowering of consent of partnership between her and god she embodies those words the apostle paul would later write that we are co-laborers with god although in nine months she'll be able to claim that in a way the rest of us can't co-laborers with god these are the jokes people she's having a baby she's in labor 
She's a co-laborer. All right. Thank you. Anyway, Mary is the ultimate co-laborer with God. And as such, she stands at the center of a long tradition of those who are unlikely respondents to unlikely calls from God. Maybe you stand there with her. Maybe you stand there alongside also Moses, the murderer who caught and carried fire from a burning bush, or Esther, the queen who prevented genocide by flouting expectations to be seen but not heard, along with the woman with chronic bleeding who knew that she knew that she knew she just had to touch the hem of Jesus' robe to be healed. She just had to make it to the very edge of Jesus, and there she would find everything she needed. There's Peter, the blue-collar fisherman, who gets to lead a transnational spiritual revival. There's the followers of Jesus throughout the ages who raised their hands to love those society cast away. Like the second century Christians who stayed and cared for entire cities during a 15-year smallpox epidemic. 15 years. We're, we're in like year two. A 15-year smallpox epidemic during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. They stayed. They cared for entire cities while everyone who could fled the cities out to, you know, their little farms and homesteads and all of that. This wasn't the only time they would do that. And then there's communities like ours saying, of course, of course, the LGBTQ community is part of the church. Of course. What is, what is wrong with the rest of you? And then there's friends I have, other Christians who, for example, they're working at low-income medical clinics in rural parts of Texas. They've got this fire birthed in their belly that says, this is the work I'm called to do in partnership with God. It's a sense of calling, and they want to stand in the tradition of Mary, who says, I will join you in birthing something salvific, something that brings salvation in the most practical of meanings possible to fill bellies, to heal bodies, to put roofs over heads. Now, in this last part of the sermon, these last few minutes, I want to explore what this story means further for us and our lives. What love can we practice that might lead to someone to burst into song about God's goodness that might cause them to see that they are not forgotten, that might spark that hope that they are also included in God's redemptive work in this world. I mean, it's fun to play with the text. It's fun to try to pitch jokes to you that you don't really get and laugh at. It's fun to make historical contemporary connections and collapse timelines and to dis discuss the data and the stories. It's fun to be awash in the knowledge of the harms of systemic racism toward all our neighbors of color, which this is the work we've been doing. We've been discussing these things. Now, now for a couple of years, Aurelia Friend and I have been intentional about these things, discussing the classism that forces the working class to live crucified lives, the sexism that subjugates half of our society to the other. It is fun to talk about these things, and We've been doing this kind of consciousness-raising work, right? The, building some awareness, seeing the system. And it's been a vital first step in seeing, to use a theological word, the demonic systems of our society. But I asked this morning, what does it look to go beyond learning? To go beyond merely tipping our hats and our words toward virtue, 
we have learned that silence is violence. And we've taken steps to stop being silent. But I wonder if silence is violence, then merely speaking and merely virtue signaling with words must be double violence because it gives an empty hope that change might come while allowing us to claim a higher moral ground only by fiat, by simply declaring it so rather than doing the actual work required. So don't take this personally this morning. I'm not attacking anyone or our community. I'm not saying we're not doing work. I'm just saying that love must always have an object. That's how love works. It must have a recipient. And we have spoken so much about the injustices of our society, and rightly so, and we don't equivocate, and we will continue to do so. But I'm saying this morning that merely speaking about injustices and trauma doesn't cause spontaneous, rapturous singing like we see with Mary right here. You know what does. People feeling empowered centered and supported in working for the wholeness of themselves and their communities. A way opening up where it seems like there was no way. The unmasking and making a public spectacle of oppressive systems and then dismantling them, actually dismantling them. Safe homes and health care and food in bellies. These things cause rapturous singing like we see with Mary here. A rekindled sense that we are not stuck in some death doom loop, but that God is wanting to partner with us to birth something new in this world. That's too big. Not just in this world, in your unique family, in your life, in your unique work, career, vocation, what avocation, whatever that is. God wants to partner with you in that very small space to do something and birth something new into this world. And that's what leads to rapturous singing. And I'm hopeful that over the next year, we can practice this love toward singing ethic. But I want to say it's all of our responsibility. The leader's role in this community is to help coordinate and organize. And as Fran says, we can't do your spiritual work for you. It's an inside job. And so we can help coordinate and organize some of that. But we practice decentralized power sharing around here. That's what we do. That means we are each responsible for this kind of work. If you know something we can do to support kids and teachers at your school, we will partner with you to support their singing. If you know of a neighbor that needs some home repairs, but lacks the resources, please lead us in helping them sing. I can't be, Aurelia friend, we can't be the single point of failure in this causing singing in the world. We are sharing power with you all. This is an invitation for us each to step up and do that work. I've been impressed over the past week, I started a little thread on our Facebook local group about building resilient homes. How do we get ready for snow apocalypse, you know, part two? Hopefully it doesn't come. But what I'm finding, and it's beautiful, is that I'm seeing people support one another and reach out to one another. And I know DMs are going around to one another and we are stitching together a resilient social safety net right here. We are doing that kind of work because 
If you're trapped at home in a snowpocalypse and you don't have any food and your dogs don't have food and you're feeding your dogs a little bit of food, that you that's not going to cause rapturous singing. But if we have built a social safety net in advance, then you can sing through something like that. So we are taking the responsibility for each other, the responsibility to help one another sing, to support the Marys in this world so that they can sing. So as we head toward Christmas and into a new year, my prayer, my hope, is that God would open our eyes, hearts, and hands to see that there are innumerable ways to practice love that births singing for each of us in our own lives and for the courage to join Mary in responding to that call, we pray. Amen.